Sam, appreciate it. Thank you. Clap now, because it's all downhill. Uh, I think that uh, sometimes we have a little bit of a misconception about the Christian life, or at least I did for an awful long time. I think it's very easy to sort of think, hey, if I become a Christian, then things are supposed to like go okay, you know, and we even have verses that we kind of quote about stuff like that, like, for example, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, oh yeah, yay, and we come to church and we're like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, but if we're honest, we're kind of thinking, well, it's getting to be lunchtime and I want some Chipotle, and how does this work, you know, and, and we kind of start to struggle, and uh, if we're really honest, and, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down uh, in green pastures beside the quiet waters, like, woo, this is awesome, you know, although I don't know why you would lay down on a perfectly good golf course, but you, you kind of, you, you work through this, and, and the thing that we sometimes forget is, like, the middle of the psalm, where it says things like, even if I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, and, and you're like, oh, wait, I, that is, is that part of the faith life? I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure about that part. And um, the thing about the book of Exodus, right, because we're rolling into the book of Exodus, apparently, at least I'm going to do Exodus. I don't know if that's what you're, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. I'm pretty sure that's what I was told. And the thing about the book of Exodus is uh, we're, we're pretty familiar. I think most of us are familiar with what the book of Exodus is about. I mean, there's been movies, you know, and so if nothing else, you can think, oh yeah, there was a movie, the people were in slavery, and they got out of slavery, and that's called the Exodus. Woohoo! God delivered them from slavery. But the funny thing is, is that the book of Exodus is a 40-chapter book, and the Exodus is done and over with by chapter 15. Okay, and that clues us into the fact that the book of Exodus is actually about something more than just the release from slavery, okay? And that's, and that's what we're going to uh, get into a little bit today, uh, as well as I'll sort of foreshadow uh, some of the stuff that's coming down the pike in the next few weeks. All right, now, as Travis said, um, I am a uh, Bible professor, basically, and so I, I, I'm just warning you up front, you know, buckle up. Uh, today's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. Uh, yeah. So I have some pictures. Can we have pictures? Okay. So here's Egypt. All right. And what I want you to see is that Egypt is uh, green where the river is. Okay. So the Nile River runs right through Egypt. And you can see the route of the Nile because that's the green strip. And then up at the top, there's that triangle part, and we call that the delta. And the Hebrew slaves would have been in the northeastern part of that triangle, all right? They are located in what's called Goshen, which is way up north. And basically in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, uh, it's not true today since the building of the Aswan Dam that, that changed all of this, uh, but prior to the building of the dam, Egypt would flood every year. The Nile would flood every year. And it was a gentle flood where the water would rise over time. And then as the water receded, the, gar the, uh, <laughs> the gardeners, I was going to say, 
but uh, the people would plant their crops as the water is receding. And it, and it was literally that you could stand with one foot in fertile vegetation and one foot in the desert in Egypt. That's how stark the line was. It does not rain in Egypt. Okay, so everything for life and sustenance in Egypt is built on the river. And we're going to uh, have a little bit more of that. Okay, uh, all right, let's uh, on to the next. So this line is what essentially sets the stage for the drama of the Exodus. Uh, if you're not entirely familiar with the story, when Exodus opens, time has lapsed since the death of Joseph, and a new pharaoh has come on the throne who does not acknowledge what, what Joseph has done for the country. He's like, I don't care. I'm doing my own thing. And the people up in Goshen, the Hebrew slaves, they're, they're um, growing in numbers. And so Pharaoh begins to try and oppress the Hebrews so they don't get out of control. Okay? And, and so they end up, the Hebrews end up in slavery. And then you have this dude, Moses. And Moses, you know, famous story, put in a basket in the river, floated down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, raises him. And, and then uh, Moses, later on, as he, after he grows up, he gets ticked at an Egyptian, kills him, has to flee. And he flees off into the wilderness. And it's after that that you get the famous burning bush story, right? Where Moses is out wandering around with his sheep. And he looks, and there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up which would kind of be like a, oh, what's going on kind of moment. You know, Moses is a brave man because if I saw a bush out in the wilderness that was on fire but it wasn't burning up, I would probably need a change of underwear and I would run. And Moses is like, I got to check this thing out, you know. So he goes and you have this uh, dialogue with God where God says, hey, Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt to deliver the people from slavery. And Moses, of course, very logical man, says, who am I that I should go and do something like that? I don't, I don't have the ability to do that. And God's response, typical God, uh, doesn't really matter who you are, I'll be with you. Okay, and that's, that's kind of normal. So then, uh, by the end of chapter 4, Moses has gone back to Egypt. And when he first shows up and talks to Pharaoh, it's at the beginning of chapter 5. And Moses shows up. And he says to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, or uh, in your Bible, if you see Lord all in capital letters in the Old Testament, that's um, Yahweh, God's name, Yahweh, that, that's been written there. So this is what Yahweh, or the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. And I'm not letting them go. Okay? Now, this sets the stage for everything that's going to occur for the next seven chapters or so. And, and here's the deal. In ancient Egypt, Pharaoh is a god. Pharaoh is the human manifestation of the sun god, the most important god in ancient Egypt. So when Moses shows up and says... This is what Yahweh, the God of those slaves, says. Pharaoh's response is, of course, going to be, why would I care what Yahweh says? I don't know Yahweh. 
And to us, because we're not used to thinking of people being gods, uh, this story reads really strange to us. We read it and we're like, there's just a king, there's this dude, and he's, he's a jerk. Uh, but what's going on is from an Egyptian perspective, Yahweh, uh, uh, Pharaoh is the manifestation, the human manifestation of the most powerful God in the cosmos, okay? And so it makes perfect sense for Pharaoh to go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Some, some deity of those slaves, those shepherding slaves, is trying to tell me what to do? That makes no sense, okay? And this sets the stage. And then you roll into the kind of famous stuff about uh, the plagues, you know, the, the story that most of us have probably heard. And the plagues are essentially God showing up and messing with the order of, of Egypt, with Egypt working how it should. And that is by nature messing with Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's job as the manifestation of the sun, Pharaoh's job is to make sure that Egypt is working well. And so when some minor deity, from Pharaoh's perspective, when some minor deity of shepherds up slaves, you know, whatever, when that deity can come in and mess with the functioning of Egypt, that is a huge indictment on Pharaoh, okay? And so to us, it looks like a story where God is interacting with a human king. From ancient Egypt's perspective and from the perspective of the story and the way the story is written, it's a conflict between gods, between Yahweh, who should be a nothing God because he's only the God of those slaves, and Pharaoh, who should be the ultimate God of the universe. And that's, that's the conflict that is set up. So this line is key, all right? So we have to talk about Pharaoh a little bit. All right, on to the next. So we're going to start uh, plowing through this. Many think that Ramses II was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And uh, Ramses II built a lot of stuff, and we're told in chapter 1 of Exodus that the Hebrew slaves had to help with some of the building projects. The building projects of Ramses II included a royal palace that was four square miles. It was rather large. Here's a picture of excavations of this. This is where um, Moses may have grown up, is in this, is in this royal uh, residence here. Um, on to the next Okay, now, the Egyptians loved word plays, okay? Um, so, uh, here's an example. You are complete and great in your name of bitter lake. See, you are great and round in your name of ocean. Now, right about now, you're going, where is this guy going? This makes no sense whatsoever. All right, hang, hang with me, hang with me. So, you have a word play, because what they're saying is, you are kam untoir in your name of kamwar. But the, when you put it together, it makes this weird word play. Like, my name is Eric. Okay? And it would be kind of like if somebody went up to me and said, you are the wind, air, and you stink and smell foul, ick. You are stinky, foul wind, air, ick. You know? And it's like this wordplay thing. And, and to us, it's kind of silly. To them, it let them into the very nature and character of a deity. Okay? The name of a deity told you about the character of that deity. 
And if you could get the name of a deity, then you had the ability to call on that name in a way that guaranteed results, that was highly manipulative. All right, so this next one, uh, I'm going to do this. You got to watch. All right, <laughs> here's, here's what it looks like in Egyptian, in case you can read Egyptian. Next, um, so here's, here's another example. Tell me your name, my divine father, for a person lives when he recites incantations in his name. The point is, if you could call on the name of a deity, you could manipulate that deity, okay? And this, the reason I'm showing you this is when Moses first interacts with Yahweh, you have to remember Moses is a trained Egyptian. He's Hebrew by birth, but grew up as an Egyptian. And so when God shows up at the burning bush and says, hey, I'm going to send you, Moses asks a really great question. Hey, when I show up and I tell those slaves that you, you've heard them and you're going to set them free, what do I tell them your name is? You see, Moses, don't think that when Moses shows up in the burning bush, he's like got his theology all put together. You know, he's a good Christian. God called him. No, he's an Egyptian. And he wants to be able to manipulate God because if he's going to go and show up before Pharaoh, he wants to know that this God talking to him from a bush is actually going to show up and do his job. And it's super interesting. Uh, go to the next slide. I, I can't remember. Okay. It's super interesting because what God says, this is in Exodus chapter 3, is he says, oh, tell him I am sent you. I am in Hebrew is Ehyeh. And then God's like, all right, all right, I'm messing with you. My name is Yahweh. You hear the similarity? Ehyeh, I am. Yahweh. He is or he will be. There's a word play, okay? And the point is, this is why I'm talking about this, the point is that Moses is showing up, acting like an Egyptian, wanting to have assurance that he can manipulate God and get God to do whatever he wants. We do that, by the way, don't we? Oh, if I pray in just a certain way, if I pray at the right time, if I have my quiet time every day this week, if I make sure that I'm, you know, being a good Christian, then God's going to show up and he's going to work the way I want him to work. And part of the story is that God doesn't do that. God is not going to be manipulated. God is good, yes, but he can't be manipulated. And there are these times in our life where we feel like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and we're sitting around going, where is God? Okay. As a matter of fact, when you get into the Ten Commandments, you know that commandment, uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay. Don't take Yahweh, the name of your God, in vain. And that thing that's translated in vain is the same word that's used for magical incantations or rituals. In other words, in the Ten Commandments, God tells the Israelites, don't do this. Don't think that you can call on my name and I'm just going to act and do whatever you want because you, you prayed in just the right way. Okay? So all of this is present in the story. And uh, I want to show you some pictures of Ramses here. Notice that he's got a snake on his headdress. That's kind of a big deal. We'll come back to that. Uh, on to the next. Here's uh, Ramses being given the breath of life. That little uh, symbol is called an Ankh symbol that Horus is holding, and that's the symbol for life. On to the next. Uh, here's Ramses. There he is. 
If only I could look so good after 3,200 years. Yes, another picture of Ramses. Uh, oh, we, we skipped. There he is. There he is. He's looking good, 3,200 years old. And um, very, very, very powerful man in the ancient world. Okay, uh, let's do the next slide. Here's his wife, and notice she also has the headdress thing. We'll talk about that in a second. All right, here we go. Oh, fiery serpent. This is an Egyptian text. Okay, this isn't in the Bible. Oh, fiery serpent, grant that the dread of me be like the dread of you. Grant that the fear of me be like the fear of you. On to the next. Uh, when uh, Here's another. This is Ramses II talking about being in battle. When dawn came, I marshaled the battle line in the fight. I was prepared to fight like an eager bull. He's a stud. I was, uh, I read that. I appeared against them, the Hittites, like Montu, uh, a cool thing, arrayed in the accoutrements of valor and victory. This guy would be awesome in like a pre-game pep talk to the Huskers, you know. You are valiant. The fiery serpent goes before you. I entered into the battle lines fighting like the pounce of a falcon. My serpent, this thing, uh, overthrowing my enemies for me, she spat her fiery flame in the face of my foes. The next one. Um, and you can see here, you have these serpent staff things. This is typical in ancient Egypt. And if you go to the next one, here's King Tut with his little serpent, okay? The reason I'm showing you this is when Moses says, hey, wait, how, how do I show them that it's actually you giving the message, Lord? And, and do you remember the Lord says, hey, what is that in your hand? Oh, it's a staff. Oh, throw it on the ground. Snake. You know, it's weird. It's crazy stuff. Okay? And then when Moses shows up before Pharaoh, he takes his staff, you know, like, like, like we saw in the picture, throws it on the ground, snake, and then the Egyptians are like, silly tricks. I can do that, you know. Boom. Snake. But then, what does the text say? Moses is... Snake ate the Egyptian snake. The, to us, you know, we read that and we're like, oh, it's weird snake stories. And for me personally, I don't know about you, I, I hate snakes. I don't, wanna, I don't even want to read a story about snakes and staffs turning into snakes and stuff. I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not interested. But the thing that I want you to see is that God is hitting Pharaoh at his strongest point. Okay? To Pharaoh, that snake that they wear on the headdress symbolized in the staff, that snake is a symbol of his strength. So when God shows up through Moses and says, you know, hey, throw, the, throw your staff down, and the Moses snake eats the Egyptian snake, that's God, you know, God knows how to trash talk and kind of, you know, play the game. It's pretty awesome. All right, the other thing that I want you to see here, oh, sorry, I pointed, false alarm. Um, the, other thing I <laughs> the other thing I want you to see is uh, the shepherd's staff that uh, King Tut is holding here. So then, on to the next. Um, you can also see uh, Seti has his shepherd's crook thing. And the little guy is Ramses II when he was a kid. Um, on to the next. And here he is again with the shepherd's staff. Um, check out this text, not from the Bible. <laughs> uh, this is an Assyrian text. Asher, that's a deity placed in my hand the just scepter that extends the realm, the merciless staff for the destruction of enemies. Or here's another one. Uh, again, not the Bible. 
shepherd the people, the cattle of God, for it is for their sake that he created heaven and earth. Here's why I'm showing you this stuff, this seemingly very random stuff, okay? When Moses shows up and he tells Pharaoh, Yahweh says, let his people go. Moses can't say, you know, slavery is not a good socioeconomic practice. People were created with equal rights, you know, these kinds of things. Why is that not in the Bible, right? Why is that not in this story? Why doesn't Moses say things like that? He doesn't say anything like that because from an Egyptian perspective, uh, Pharaoh functioning as the shepherd of the people is from the gods. And um, in the social hierarchy of ancient Egypt, at the pinnacle, at the top, is Pharaoh. At the bottom of the social hierarchy in ancient Egypt, shepherds. And the Hebrews were known as shepherds. And that's why those dirty, nasty shepherds with their big beards and their hair all over the place had to live way up in Goshen. I don't know if you noticed in the pictures, you probably didn't, but the Egyptians would shave their heads because of lice. The only Egyptians who had hair in any of these pictures was the young Ramses who would have one lock of hair coming off the right side, which is a symbol of crown prince. Other than that, they shaved their head. In other words, the, the Egyptians were like the ancient mani-pedi kind of people, and the, uh, <laughs> and the Hebrews were like, you know, Uncle Sai, Duck Dynasty kind of people, right? And so the, the Egyptians really looked down on that. So from Pharaoh's perspective... I am the manifestation of the chief God. Of course these people are supposed to serve me. In other words, Moses can't show up and make a socioeconomic argument. He has to show up and make a theological argument. It's the only way it's going to work with Pharaoh. Okay? Uh, because the king is the shepherd. Which, by the way, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd imagery for, for kings is... This is common in the ancient world. All right, so on to the next. Uh, there's the text. On to the next. <laughs> All right, so this is Pharaoh talking, and I want you to get a feel for how cool Pharaoh is, okay? Then when my troops and my chariotry saw me, that I was like Montu by my arms strong, Amun, my father, being with me instantly, turning all the foreign lands into straw before me. Then they presented themselves one by one to approach the camp at evening time to do what? My army came to praise me. Their faces amazed at seeing what I had done. My officers came to extol my strong arm and likewise my chariotry, boasting of my name. Yahweh, uh, Pharaoh is a deity, okay? Pharaoh is a deity from an Egyptian perspective, and that's why he's talking like this. What's next? Here he is in his war chariot, crushing his enemies who are fleeing before him, okay? So when Moses shows up and he says, Yahweh says, let my people go, what has to happen is a theological exchange, all right? And that's why you have the plagues, because what the plagues do is they attack not only Pharaoh in his administration of the kingdom, but they also attack other gods. Um, I think I have some examples. On to the next. Um, so 
Moses uh, is to be God to Pharaoh, all right? This is the beginning of Exodus chapter 7, all right? So again, remember, the context here is that we have to be theological in this interchange between uh, uh, the Lord and Pharaoh. So the Lord said to Moses, look, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now, I, I was just reading um, Exodus 7, verse 1. And in the translation I'm reading from, it says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. The reason the translator did that is it just seemed a little too weird that God would say, I have made you God to Pharaoh. But the actual text, the actual Hebrew text, the Lord says to Moses, check it out, Moses. I have made you God to Pharaoh. Here's what's going on. Pharaoh is the human manifestation of the sun god, the chief, most important, biggest Egyptian god. And so what God, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the real God, the one that exists, what God does is he says, okay, here's the deal, Moses. Pharaoh thinks he's God. He thinks he's the manifestation of the sun god. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you God. I am going to do for you what the Egyptians think is going on with Pharaoh. And so your job, Moses, is to show up and you're going to be God to Pharaoh. You're going to be in charge. You're going to mess with his system. You're going to tell him what's up. And I am going to do all that stuff through you. It has to be a theological battle. It cannot be a socioeconomic battle to get the Hebrews out of slavery. So Moses has the authority to command, judge, and punish Pharaoh, and the power to perform wonders, which, from an Egyptian perspective, is a God thing to do. All right, next. So Moses is, to Yahweh, what Pharaoh is supposed to be to Ray, the sun god. I don't know, is, is it making any sense? Yeah. Oh, okay, thank you, audience participation. All right, on, a, <laughs> on to the next. Okay, so let's have another example. Uh, the first plague is the Nile turning to blood. All right? Now, we look at that, and we're like, wow, that's a cool trick. Uh, from an Egyptian perspective, it's an attack on a god. So here is Hapi. That's how you say that. You can call it happy if you want. But Hapi uniting Upper and Lower Egypt. Uh, remember, I've said like eight times, Pharaoh is the manifestation of the sun. Uh, the river, the Nile, okay, is the manifestation of Hapi, this deity, okay? So here's Hapi, the river god, the, the Nile, all right? On to the next. Here's another view. Hapi, again. Uh, the reason there's like two Hapis, it's one deity, but you, you symbol Hapi with two images because of upper and lower Egypt, and the river runs through both. So you have these two side-by-side uh, -side mirror images of Hapi because Hapi is what unites upper and lower Egypt because the river runs through the whole thing. Uh, or here's this one's awesome because Hapi is blue. That paint is original. Uh, I mean, in other words, the paint on there was not, is not a modern reconstruction. That paint sur has survived for like 3,000 years. Okay, so that... Uh, again, is Hapi blue because Hapi is the river, okay? And the river was one of the chief gods of Egypt. Let's read about Hapi. Yes. May, <laughs> yes, this is awesome. 
This is, this is like Egyptian poetry. It's like what you would find in the Psalms, but it's Egyptian and to the river. May your countenance shine on us, Hapi, God of the moving river, who comes forth from earth returning to save the black land. He, he fathers the barley, brings emmer to be, that's wheat, fills the God's temples with odor of festival, but let him be backward, then breathing falters, all faces grow fierce with privation. Remember what I said at the beginning when we saw the picture. Every year the Nile would flood, and as the waters receded, you would plant your crops. And so it is because of Hapi, the river, that you have food in Egypt. And um, you went through Genesis, right, and the famine in the land that Joe helped out with. Does that sound familiar? Okay. That famine comes from the river not flooding like it should. That's what causes famine in ancient Egypt. And so, um, uh, so that's what's referenced here. If, if the river doesn't do its annual flood, then we're up a creek. All right, on to the next. All men honor the nine great gods, but even those great gods stand in awe of that deity who aids his son, divine Lord of all, in greening the banks of the Nile. O hidden God, be it well with you. May you flourish and return. Hopi, river spirit, may you flourish and return. All right, I think I have one more. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the reason I put this up here is the, the river turning red for various reasons um, happens every now and then. So this is actually an Egyptian text. It has nothing to do with the Exodus. Uh, Verily the heart is horrified, for affliction pervades the land. Blood is everywhere. Verily the river is blood, because uh, different things could happen. Either silt would accumulate, or algae would bloom, or whatever, and you end up... I mean, you can actually Google it, Red Rivers. It happens. Um, but anyway, whether or not that's what's going on in Exodus or not, I have no idea. The only reason I show this is to say that this idea of the Nile turning to blood is, is not just in the Bible. It appears in Egyptian texts. But here's my point. Hapi is the river deity. And so when Moses shows up, what God does through Moses is mess with the order of Egypt and messes with the gods of Egypt. It has to be a theological battle or it cannot be won. Okay, and so when the Nile turns to blood, it's a direct assault on Hopi. Um, I have another one here, this frog, remember the frogs coming out of the Nile? Um, that's uh, Heket, uh, another deity. So again, these plagues, God is showing off. He is showing that he's actually more powerful than Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods, okay? Next, oh, the sun, hail to thee. Amon-Re, that's the sun. Pharaoh is the manifestation of Re or Amon-Re. So, uh, hail to thee, Amon-Re, Lord of the thrones of the two lands, presiding over Karnak, Lord of what is, enduring of all things, the goodly bull of the Ennead. The Ennead is the nine great Egyptian gods, chief of all gods, the Lord of truth and the father of gods. This is how you talk to Pharaoh. Okay, so again, I'm just showing Pharaoh's a big deal. Okay, what's next? There is the sun, that giant red disc. Uh, that's the sun essentially going across the sky. That's what's being represented there. On to the next. Um, here is uh, Pharaoh's war tent, which the tabernacle is structured uh, along similar lines. We'll talk about that in three weeks. Next. Um, 
Okay. Uh, yeah, we got this. This is super interesting, but uh, for the sake of not keeping you here all day, um, <laughs> do the next picture. It's a close-up. Uh, that's all right. Oh, did we? Did we? Oh, all right. <clears throat> There's the close-up. Um, basically, the belief is that after an Egyptian dies, the heart would be weighed against the feather, and if your heart was so pure as to be lighter than a feather, then you would go on into the afterlife. If your heart was not so pure as to be lighter than a feather, then your heart would be fed to that uh, hippo, lion, crocodile thing, <laughs> and you'd be done. This is what's being referred to in Exodus when it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hard. Okay, Pharaoh's heart is being made heavier than a feather, which is only God can do that. The, the Pharaoh is like by definition the perfect heart from an Egyptian perspective. Okay, so all of this is a theological thing. Uh, go, go to the end. <clears throat> One more. Oh, yeah, we don't have time. One more. That's super cool, though, the execration text. Anyway, um, okay, so we've had texts talking about Pharaoh and his right arm and how mighty he is, and so when Moses, after the Exodus, is praising the Lord, he takes all that lingo and turns it upon Yahweh. And then let's end with this. <clears throat> so we started with Pharaoh's statement of, I don't know Yahweh, and that sets the stage for the story of the Exodus. And then afterwards, after the Exodus has actually occurred and the Hebrews are praising the Lord, they say, who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Now to us, if we went around saying, who among the gods, and we're all monotheists, and we're like, that's a meaningless statement, okay? But these people just came out of slavery in Egypt. And they're referencing the fact that the gods of Egypt could not contain them or their god, Yahweh. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Um, I kind of wanted to, this week, like show you some pictures, give you some text, stuff like that, just to kind of begin to give you this little taste of Egypt, okay? Next week, we're going to talk about the Passover, and uh, it's going to blow your mind because there's a lot going on there that we're just not culturally familiar with. Uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about the law, which you should be thinking, oh, that's boring. And uh, we're going to talk about it in a way that is that you're going to be like, oh, my goodness, that's so amazing. And then the last week, we're going to talk about the tabernacle, which, again, it's like, what? Who cares? But you're going to be like, Jesus did what? Uh, it's going to be really fantastically awesome because remember the exodus proper is the first 15 chapters of the book and that begs the question if it's a 40 chapter book and only the first 15 chapters of the exodus what are what are this book what's this book about okay here's what the book is about at the beginning of the book the people are in slavery and being forced to dump their kids in the river and remember that that's a religious thing because the river is Hopi, a deity. And by the end of the book, you have a people who have been delivered from slavery. They're getting ready to head into a, their own land. They've been given the law, which is to them their identity. 
and they've been told to construct a tabernacle, and in chapter 40, the presence of God inhabits that tabernacle, and God is living in a tent in their midst. What is Exodus about? Exodus is about the journey from a seemingly absent God to God living in our midst in a tent. And I think what is so important is that the the message for us is that it is a normal, natural part of the Christian life to go through these periods where we're sitting around wondering where is God. And the answer is, God is present even in his absence. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the story of Exodus. I thank you that even in those times when I can't see your hand, when I don't know where you are, when I'm frustrated at your silence, that you, in fact, are with me. Help me help us to believe in faith that even in those times where you seem distant, you seem absent, your hand is at work. We might not be able to see it. We might not know exactly what you're doing. It might be ridiculously uncomfortable, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You, in fact, are with us, and I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.